Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. In this podcast, we continue our adult faith formation series in the book of Isaiah, I Am Doing a New Thing, led by Mark Gravrock. The discussion in this episode was recorded on February 27th, 2022. And now, here's Mark with an opening song. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. You are my servant, you are my chosen. You are the child of Abraham, my friend. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. And I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my strong right hand. I've been wanting to uh, remind you of another hymn uh, in our tradition. It's, it's, a, it's an old American hymn. It's been around for quite a while, and you probably know it. And it's almost entirely based on these chapters of Isaiah. That hymn is How Firm a Foundation. Are you familiar with that one? Some of you may have grown up with the tradition of singing that to the tune of um, O Come All Ye Faithful. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord. Um, the, one, the one that I've been more familiar with in several iterations of the hymnals is um, the tune's called Foundation. That must be how it was written. Okay. <laughs> If you're curious where to find it, this is our current hymnal. It's hymn number 796. So the first verse, How firm a foundation, that's all. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in God's, in Christ Jesus the Word. A little bit new translation there. What more can he say than to you he has said? Who unto the Savior for refuge have fled. Now that's not all clear that we're talking about Isaiah yet, is it? There's a little bit there about the word. Um, and actually the, the, the text has been changed, laid for your faith in Christ Jesus, the word. Um, the older version, laid for your faith in God's excellent word. But the excellent word that the, that the hymn writer is talking about is the book of Isaiah. So... There are three more verses, and yes, I'm going to sing them for you, like it or don't. Um, uh, see if you recognize verse 2. Fear not, I am with you, O be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Sound a little familiar? Yeah. That's from Isaiah 41. The next one comes from the beginning of, of Isaiah 43, and that's the part that talks about when you go through, if you, when you pass through the fire or pass through the waters, um, I will lead you, they will not overwhelm you. It's that passage. This is verse 3. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient will be your supply. The flames shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. 
a little bit of interpretation on how the fire works, but that's where it comes from, is chapter 43. And then let's see if you recognize this final verse. <clears throat> Throughout all their lifetime my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And then when gray hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. Recognize that one? It's Isaiah 46. And that's the one that starts out mocking Bel and Nebo, the gods of Babylon, because they have to be carried around wherever they go. And if, if the people carry them, slip and stumble, the gods are just going to fall over. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, your God, carries you, has carried you since the womb, and has been carrying you your whole life, and will carry you into old age and into gray hairs. That's that passage. It's, I just wanted you to know about that, that this hymn is just steeped in Isaiah 40 through 46. That's where it comes from. Uh, hymn number 796. Let's pray. Thank you, gracious God, that you are so faithful and constant. It doesn't look like that to us a lot of the time, Lord, and it didn't to those people back in Babylon. We struggle because we can't see. We can't see what's up and we can't see where things are going. But you prove yourself to be faithful and trustworthy, and your promises lead us and hold us. We ask you to be with us today as we, as we look to your word. Open your word to us and open us to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We will have one more session after today. Next, what we're doing next week is we'll look at the final chapter of 2nd Isaiah. That would be Isaiah 55. If you know that chapter at all, it's a beautiful, gorgeous chapter. We'll spend time in that. But then I also want to just do a look at, get a hint into what happens in the rest of the book of Isaiah with four, 56 to 66, because then they go back home, and they have to face the reality of what's there. And so we'll be looking at this, the promises of God for a, a really gorgeous future, but it's not going to be the future that you remember from the past. It's going to be something different. It's going to call for new challenges. Um, and I think those chapters have a lot to say for us um, in post-Christendom times and in um, maybe post-pandemic times, assuming there will be a post-pandemic time. Okay. That's right. Oh, here's our picture for today. Um, for those that are, uh, let's, let's again describe it for ourselves and for those who might be listening to the podcast later, uh, describe the picture for us. Blue tones. Blue tones. I'd say that this is um, Mary and her older cousin Elizabeth. Could be Mary and Elizabeth. Which one's which? Uh, well, the one with the baby has John early yeah. because there's the baby. She's holding a baby. Tiny, so the yeah. one on the right would be Elizabeth then. Yes. Unless Mary gets to hold her, hold him. Me, it says they're leaving Babylon and they're leaving people behind. Leaving Babylon and leaving people behind. Mm -hmm. Boy, that's got repercussions and reverberations from Ukraine this week, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the 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 look on their mouths, their faces look like they're more in in mourning or wonderment of what's going to come next. 
It doesn't look like excitement, does it? No. No. Yeah, so we have two women leaning into each other, deep, rich uh, blue tones, and the faces are, you said mourning, perhaps. Solemn. Solemn. But I don't know, there's a different kind of feeling to the woman with her eye open. I'm not sure what it is. What do you think? What is How does it resonate with you? Um, it's almost like a disagreement or something. Like disagreement? Or something. Okay. She's got herself set against something. There's a look of... I guess I've looked at too many things on the news, but it looks like a lot of the women coming over the border that they're in shell shock. Shell yeah. shock. Yeah. Is there some that, shell shock going on? I see fear is behind her eyes. And fear is behind her eyes. Yeah. I see knowing. Not fear, but knowing, solemn knowing. In solemn words, knowing. Solemn knowing that, that this is not this is not a joyful painting. I know. No, it is not, not like all the others I've shown you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, you couldn't see that. You got a sarcastic look. <laughs> but, I mean, these blue tones are very... Uh, blue is mournful. It can be joyous, but it isn't in this place. Okay. Yeah, blue tones can be joyful, but they don't... Those kind of tones are not joyful in this picture. Just for reference, this is Picasso. Um, and I don't know very much about Picasso except his Guernica and other weird later things. But this is called from what's called his blue period, oddly enough. Um, does anybody know anything about Picasso's blue period? Well, you can notice the figures better and everything, but is it like so distorted and everything? <laughs> they look normal, don't they? Eyes, <laughs> but the eyes. Eye is not but the eye. That looks like a Picasso yeah. eye, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know much about Picasso's blue period or anything like that. The one little piece I saw um, where, where we where we got the picture from, um, it looked to me like this period is was also in the, there was there were some assassinations and some other things going on. I don't know if this is the early part of the Spanish Civil War or exactly when, but but there are there are awful things going on in society that are bringing grief. Um, so it's not. I, th I think we're on track with the kind of mood of the painting. What we're moving into today is um, in Isaiah. Uh, 49 and 50 and 54. Um, they're rich, deep chapters of Isaiah. First of all, the, the, as I mentioned last time, the scene has shifted. The first half of Second Isaiah, chapters 40 through 48, are really focusing on Babylon and the people still in Babylon and God's message that, hey folks, get ready, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to set you free. We're going to go back to Jerusalem, back to Zion. The second half, from 49 on through 55, tend to focus on much more. It does go back to Babylon, too, but it focuses much more on the place they came from and where they're going back to, on Jerusalem, on Zion. Those would be pretty interchangeable terms for Isaiah. Zion was technically the hill on which the temple was built within Jerusalem, but it became a, a virtual synonym for Jerusalem. As I mentioned last time, uh, in, in Hebrew, in Hebrew language and in Hebrew culture, 
uh, nations are masculine, uh, grammatically masculine, and cities are grammatically feminine. And that's why Babylon could be depicted as this uh, pampered princess who's going to be thrown down. And now um, Zion, Jerusalem, is, is portrayed as this woman who is grieving. So here she's waiting back home. She has lost her husband. She's lost her children. Uh, this war has devastated her. The city is in ruins and has been lying in ruins for, what, 48 years? Something like that now. And now here she sits grieving. Now, if you remember back in, in Isaiah 40, there was that kind of triumphant call. Zion, Jerusalem, lift yourself up onto a high mountain and proclaim to the cities of Judah around you, behold your God, God's coming. So Zion gets to be the, the gospel proclaimer in that passage. But here we see her in her grief. There are some things I need to, I need to say and we need to be aware of of these images. These, there are lots of feminine images throughout these chapters. Um, Isaiah is richer in feminine images than almost any other Old Testament book except maybe Song of Solomon or Ruth or Esther. And those might be the big exceptions. Um, these feminine images are still from a male patriarchal culture and standpoint. And so if you look at these, at the women that are at Zion portrayed as a woman throughout these chapters, this is not uh, a strong woman who's kind of taking charge and mastering the situation. This is a woman who's, whose identity is focused in being married and having children, which is really pretty traditional that way, yeah. And um, the, the tragedy that's befallen her is abandonment by her husband and um, widow or widowhood is another way to talk about it, and the loss of her children. Uh, that's the way that the grief is described. So I need to be I need to be aware of that and just be sensitive to the. These are wonderful feminine images, and they're not the kind of feminine images that we want to live in today. <laughs> Times have changed, and, and we're we, so we mine the scriptures for different feminine images that are more powerful and more whole. Um, but just to just to say that to get a feel for where these images come from, and now I'm hoping that we can get beyond the patriarchy of that into feeling how the images work for us, male or female, and how they, how they function in Isaiah and how they function in our own experience of faith and grief. That makes sense? The other thing I need to say about it in advance is I don't know what any one of you has been through. And if these images are gonna talk about divorce, um, I've been divorced. <laughs> I don't know if how many of you may have been divorced and have, I don't know if any of you has been abandoned by a spouse or by a, or by a parent. There's a passage in here where God sells off his kids, okay? Um, I don't know if any of you has experienced the loss of a child or has experienced widowhood. These are images that, these are painful images and I don't want to tap your pain. Does that make sense? I can't, I can't know in advance what pain may be here, and I can't avoid it either. So all I can really do is say it out loud and say, if I do trigger any of your pain today, I don't intend to. Um, and I would just plead that the scripture then can meet you in that pain, wherever it happens to be. Um, and then the one final thing I want to say in advance about these is 
what I'm hoping we can do is simply experience the images and then go beyond the images to what are our griefs. The title for today is um, Grieving Our Losses. If you think of, just think about these two years of pandemic and think of all the different kind of losses. People who have died, people who have lost jobs, uh, our economy tanked for a while, is still trying to recover. Um, loss of our freedoms, loss of a sense of normal life. We could go on and on to talk about the losses that we, that we, we are in grief, every last one of us. Um, and I love the fact that before God finally says, it's time, let's go home now, which will happen in Isaiah 55. Um, before that happens, Isaiah takes time with these chapters to, to sit in that grief and simply to experience it. That's where we're going today. Um, anything you want to say or raise before we plunge in? That's heavy enough. <laughs> um, oh, the one other thing to say about this is that with all of the grief and with all the painful images, these chapters are also rich in promise. And I want to make sure we see those promises and hear them and feel them as we go along. So let's begin with Isaiah 49. One of the strange things in here, too, is these are the three of the four servant songs that we talked about last time are interwoven in here. And you go back and forth between one of the servant songs and these other pictures of grief and promise. So Isaiah 49 begins with one of those major, it's the second of the servant songs, um, where God, God formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that one. Um, then from verse, chapter 49, verse 8 on, there's this promise of going home. Um, God just saying, I'm going to bring you home. Uh, ending with verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, exalt, O earth, bring forth, O mountains, and break forth into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. Remember how Isaiah 40 began? Comfort, comfort my people. The Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the suffering ones. Now, the first of these images. Would someone read for us, please, Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16. We'll just start with those, 14 through 16. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child? or show no compassion for the child of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Thank you. It'll go on to talk about promises of rebuilding after that. What do you hear? What stands out for you? What catches your attention? What's well, a question and answer? And mm -hmm. the first one is, is rhetor which rhetorical in nature. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And it, it would be easier for us if they put a question mark behind it. Yeah. He didn't. So then here comes the answer. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show compassion for a child of her womb? Then that's got the question mark behind it. Yes, it does. So if you take, if you replace those question marks, there's your question and there's your answer instead of your rhetorical statement and then the question. And of course, you know, we would know that the answer to that question would be no. 
Mm -hmm. So I, I just know that with the translation and with English punctuation, it doesn't always transfer easily into Hebrew. And if you just change those two punctuation marks, sure, it it it, it kind of it, it it at least at me what it does is it actually answers or clarifies what's being said. Yeah. So I, I mean, and I don't know anything about Hebrew punctuation. I just know that Hebrew has very little punctuation <laughs> and has and has no question marks. <laughs> you have to depend on context to determine one. Um, if you were to put that first part as a question, you'd have to then turn the verb around too. Zion asks, "Has the Lord forgotten me? Has God has God forsaken me?" Question mark. What does it do to have uh, to have it be a statement instead of a question? How do you hear it? One is certainty and one is not. Mm -hmm. When you have a statement, it's like, you know, I'm in despair. God has forgotten me. It, it's yeah. done. It's, it's, oh. Yeah, I can ask it this way. Have you, most of our time, most of the time in our lives, we might raise the question once in a while, does God really know what's going on? Question mark. <laughs> and then, but have you had any of those times in your life where you would just put it as a statement? God's forgotten me. You don't have to fess up. <laughs> I have. Not long times, thankfully, but there have been moments where I think, God, you just turned your back. He just doesn't do what I ask him to do. God doesn't do what you ask him to do? I get angry. Not very cooperative. No, no, no. <laughs> We're not in the time scale when we block it. Right. Right. Yes, I mean, I'm amazed at what God gives you. But it isn't always happening. That's right. You, you can be surprised by something. And remember the kind of long time frame we're dealing with with the exile. This has been a long wait. Yeah. Um, I'd, I'd recall for you too early on in Second Isaiah, where it was actually the very end of chapter 40, where right before the those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, that famous passage. Right before that is, why, why, O oh my people, do you say? I pay, I'm paying no attention to your justice. Um, and then, then that comes in as an answer. And that's part of God's strategy, part of Isaiah's strategy in here is Isaiah is being a pastor. Isaiah is actually listening to and hearing, God is listening to and hearing the cries of our hearts and speaking them out as they are. Whether it comes out as question or whether it comes out as a, you're not here at all. But either way, the next verse comes in as, as a clear response, doesn't it? And you're right, the next one comes as a question. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? What's the answer to the question? Yes, she can. Yes, she can. This is, you know, we think of mother love as the greatest, fullest kind of love exhibited on earth. Um, can, and we want to say, no, a mother could not do that. One of, the, one of the times I was teaching Isaiah back in, at Trinity, um, there was just in the news that a, a, a woman who had abandoned her child on some doorstep someplace or in a dumpster. I can't remember exactly what it was. And we were just shocked. So the answer is both, well, no, of course not. But, well, yeah, there are times when it could happen. So then where does it go? back to the despair and uh. Uh -huh. 
Where does it go in terms of God's response? He won't forget us. I will not forget you. Inscribed in the palm of his hand. Yep. Just reminds me of that hazelnut. You know, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, just holding it. Mm, the hazelnut in the palm of the hand. Yeah, it's right mm. there. Cool. Yeah. This is why I think the Hebrews, who, you know, yes, they have not accepted the Lord, but they have been faithful for a millennium. So this is why I think that the Jewish people who have been faithful will receive a special cross because they've held out. They keep going. Yeah. I mean, talk about, hey, 60 years, yep. you're talking since Abraham, and they keep believing. So, I mean, they have, I can see why, if nothing else, the Lord said, you're stubborn, you're going to keep going. <laughs> but, I mean, I really do feel with that, that constancy, there has to be, the Lord does hold those in this special yep. part. I think so. And there's a commitment that God has never turned his back on. And they have in turn held fast. Yep. Every bit as much as we Christians have, or have. That's where last week when I was drawing that giant X, that so you've got who is the servant? The servant is Israel, called called by God into a special existence and a special purpose, and it's a commitment that God's made to this people and will not go back on, and it then focuses down into Christ at the cross, who is Israel, and then broadens back out again into this broadened ongoing people of God that go by the name of Jesus uh, that have the same calling and the same mission in the world and we're sharing, I, what I, part of what I love about that is that we're sharing it with Israel on both sides of the cross it's all part of the same picture even though obviously we, there are some thorny things to work out yet yeah. God knows a lot about it so. God knows all even more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any of us. <laughs> yeah, and even before it goes to the palm of the hand, don't miss the picture of God that we're getting there. What kind of image of God are you being given? One that never forgets. One that never forgets. Mm -hmm. and, and instructs us to not forget as well. Yeah. Remember the worst. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if the fullest if the fullest vision that we're able to have as human beings of committed, faithful love is mother love, guess what God is? Yeah. The, greatest, the greatest mother of them all. Um, the one who, who lives out and, and creates mother love. And, and this mother love flows from God's own womb. You've probably heard that the Hebrew word for compassion, uh, rachamim, is the plural of the Hebrew word for womb, rechem, that God's compassion is God's own womb love for Israel and for the creation and for us all. This is, it's, it's hidden in here, but this is a clear picture of God's motherhood of also Israel. Also to suffer with. Compassion also means to suffer with. Yes. So it makes a lot of sense. Which sounds kind of like the cross. Going on, right? Yeah, to suffer with. Yeah, so I will not forget you. And then you've got this image then. It's almost like God's decided to tattoo her hands with, with pictures of the walls of Jerusalem. Every time I put my hand to any task, there's the tattoo on my hand. And I can't forget you. You're right there all the time. I will not forget you. I will not abandon you. 
I hope you take that one to heart and take it for yourself. This is the faithfulness of our God. Well, isn't that the message of Jesus with God Emmanuel? Yes. God with us. So this is Jesus. I'm more and more convinced that the cross, whatever else the cross is doing, and it's doing all kinds of stuff, the cross is living out this commitment of God once and for all on the earth stage where we can all see it. Okay. Um, Let's move on to verses... um, 18, yeah, 18 through 21. Would somebody read those verses for us, please? 18 through 21. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, says the Lord, you should put all of them on like an ornament, and like a bride, you shall bind them on. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you will be too crowded for your inhabitants, and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children born in the time of your bereavement will yet say in your hearing, the place is too crowded for me. Make room for me to settle. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. So who has reared these? I was left all alone. From them have these come from? Where then have these come from? Isn't that fun? What are you hearing? First of all, I think of the children that are born like after World War II who don't have any concept yeah. of what sure. happened. And, and um, what a gift that is to be born up, to be born in a time when you don't know what that was. Correct. Yeah. Except that then we forget. Yes. And we can't forget. And so I see that too as, you know, we're, we're so excited about now that we forget exactly. where we were. Yep. Who is the you in this passage? It's Zion. It's Zion. Zion. If you were reading it in Hebrew, it would be clearer because all the yous in here are feminine singular. It's not a you plural. It's you, Jerusalem. You, Zion. You, greeting mother. Um, speaking a word to Zion. Is that more than a place? I mean, is it? Is it? Is it, it's geographical. Mm-hmm. But there's also people who've been left behind. Yes. And they're going to be coming. The promise is they're going to be coming back to the people who are left behind. Yes. Yeah, and, and actually, we don't really get a glimpse of those people who are still there I'm very much in these chapters of Isaiah. We won't get them, really, until you get to the final chapters of Isaiah. Uh, when the Babylonians carted off everybody into exile, it wasn't everybody. It was the upper classes. It was those with power and means. It was those who had any influence in the community. 
and the poorest of the poor are left behind in this rubble of a city trying to eke out a living. So there actually is a community there existing. So this is also a message for them, even though Isaiah never speaks to them in, in so many words. So you, singular, is Zion, Jerusalem, and by extension, the grieving people who have been left here, left behind there. But is it also a warning to those who are heading, who are going to be leaving exile eventually, about what they're going to see when they get back, about desolate places and devastated lands? Yep. And, and, um, and we're going to have to reintegrate with these people? Yeah. And there's going to be grumbling and people are going to be unhappy and. That's exactly how it plays out. And I don't think Isaiah gives much of a clue about that yet. But that's, and that's part of next week, as and I don't mean to say we're not going to talk about it now, but um, here's this gorgeous promise of coming home. And there's the reality of what you find out when you get home, including all the power struggles and how you reorganize a community. And who really is Israel? The ones who got carted off into exile or the ones who stayed here? And all of those kind of questions. Well, I mean, not to go off topic, but I read a poem about immigrants from Mexico who feel that Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and California is Jerusalem, and they just want to come home to the land that they were mm. pushed off of. Sure. And all of their strives, they come, they draw directly from Isaiah as they come into... I didn't know that. Yeah. And I'll see if I can find that poem again and see I'd love to see that. Thank you. Isn't it funny, amazing, all the echoes there are with everything we keep going through? So the heart of this, then, is a promise to grieving Mother Zion that you've lost all your kids, but guess what? They're all coming home. And in fact, far more kids than you ever thought you had. And I love the images there. The children, uh, this is verse 20, the children were born saying, Mom, this place is too small. Can we build a bigger tent or put... Listen, what are we going to do with this? And, and then Mom saying, where did all these kids come from? I was bereaved and exiled. I was left all alone. Where have all these come from? One of the images that I have here, um, particularly with verse 18, as the, when God says, you shall put them on like an ornament, uh, like a bride you shall bind them on. Middle Eastern imagery, it's, uh, it's the young woman getting married and she's wearing all of her coins yeah. and everything else as all of her finery. Um, you wear it all uh, when you dress up for a wedding or, an, or any other time like that. But the image that I really get in my mind, and I can't remember now if it's Mayan or Mexican, but you've probably seen statues or images of this grandmother, huge big old grandmother, covered with kids climbing all over her. Have you seen those images? That's the picture I get here. Here's Zion. No My kids were all gone. <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> Where did these all come from? Well, that's part of the promise. In verses 20 and 22 and 23, God says, in fact, foreign kings and queens are going to be your foster parents. They're going to bring your kids home, uh, bring them on home for you. The next image comes in chapter 50. Um, this is a painful one. Um, let me just read verse 1 of chapter 50 to begin with. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's bill of divorce with which I put her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? 
I'm going to stop there. What are you hearing? What's going on here? The sold you, by the way, is plural now. This is pretty harsh judgment. Pretty harsh judgment. So if God's asking, where's the, where's the bill of divorce? With which I put you away. What's the implication of a question like that? Who is I? Who is I? Yeah, that's, and that's part of the issue here. In, in the flow of it, it's God. God is the I. So is God the divorce-er? That's the picture. God is the divorce-er. But he wants proof. Show me proof. Show me proof. Show me proof that I divorced you. Show me proof I divorced you, Zion. Bingo. Because there is no proof. Bingo. So what does that imply about Zion, about the divorced wife, the divorcee? What is, what is she thinking and feeling and believing? God deserted me. God divorced me. God cast me out. God did this to me. Um, and God's saying, oh yeah, prove it. Show me the paper. Show me the bill of divorce. The next, the, in the next image, to which of my creditors do you think it is that I sold you kids? Um, the, their feeling, God sold us off to Babylon, actually. God sold us off. Um, for the for debts or whatever else, and God says, to which creditor do you think I sold you to? Part of what I love about this, even as painful as this is, is Isaiah is including in here both a realization, a clear realization of what the people are feeling, what we feel when we're in those places, what our conviction is, even if it's maybe not the deepest conviction, and God's response. That there is a there is a differential. There's a slip between what we think is going on and what God knows is going on. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's wonderful in terms of the the conversation that's happening. Yeah. I mean, it's very inviting for any of us wherever we are in our life to have the same kind of conversation and, and to trust our God enough to be able to have it. Yes. Yeah, that's, I love it. And if you haven't picked up on this before in the Bible. The Bible invites the gutsiest and most honest and painful prayers. You can say anything you want to God. And God says, please do. That means you're taking the relationship seriously. Then, if you say it, if you say it to me out loud, I've got a chance to deal with that and we can talk about it. But if you just think it and won't say it, it'll fester. That's pretty healthy. <laughs> a little better communicator than most of us are, but we're learning. But now look what comes in the second half of verse 50. God says, now this translation says no. The Hebrew actually says behold. Behold, because of your sins you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was put away. Now what's happening? Were they sold? Was she divorced? It was the actions of the, of, of, of the, it was the actions of the Israel, of Israel. It was their actions. It didn't have anything to do with God. It had to do with their actions. And that's why the separation came. Yeah. Let's not call it a divorce. Let's just call it a separation, a forced separation. Okay. 
It is interesting that the, the, just the, gram the grammar of those last two lines, the passive verbs, because of your sins, you were sold. Not, I sold you, but you were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was put away. Not, I put her away, but she was put away. I have to, have to uh, acknowledge at the same time that often Hebrew will use the passive voice to talk about God's actions without naming God. Um, that moves into the New Testament as well. So. Um, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be mercied. In the Beatitudes, that means God shall mercy them. But it's a way without, without kind of a reverential Jewish way of not saying God's name. But often the passive voice does mean God, but God has just finished saying, you think I did that? No, I didn't. What's this verse doing? It's, it's acknowledging the experience of the people as they name it. Um, and even giving some reasons why it happened. But that's not the end of the story for God. You think I divorced you and cast you out. Um, there's more to it than you know, Carolyn. I was going to say, this causes us trouble here and now, I think, because, you know, it was, you know, how many times have we heard preachers say, They've got AIDS because they were sinful. And we would go, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, and yet you see these passages, and, and that is difficult to deal with. It is. It's, it's a challenge because we don't, I mean, we're not comfortable saying that direct causation. Right. You know, so they seem to be more comfortable with it than we are now. That is not our interpretation or our, our way that we view God. We don't see yep. God in that direction. And, and that's a challenge, I think. It is a challenge. And it, it lingers in our piety and in our guts. It's hard, hard to get rid of. Perhaps there's a deeper meaning also in the fact, I'm not sure quite how to word this, but the separation between the secular acts that happen on earth and our yes. relationship spiritually to God. Yes. But we are always trying to equate the two, and perhaps we don't need to. Exactly. And so if, you, if you actually read through, if you kind of work through where the Bible is going, in the earliest parts of the Bible, almost everything, no matter what ha happens, God's doing it. God does this, God does that. God sends this plague, God's, the flood is God's doing, whatever, you know, that's, that's the language. And it's typical kind of human experience. Anything powerful outside us must be God's doing. As the Bible itself moves along, that gets challenged more and more. And it gets more nuanced. So through the prophets, for example, God does all kinds of things through, um, through the means of nature, through the means of nations that are at war with each other, through very tangible, in a way that you could never point to that and say, well, there, scientifically, I can prove that's God at work. No, it's messier than that. And then part of that, remember that early on we looked at, the, at um, uh, earlier chapters of Isaiah and then God's use of Cyrus and how Cyrus has no clue that God's using him. But God says, yeah, I've summoned him. I'm working through this conquering emperor who only has in mind getting a bigger empire for himself. But I'm using that. Um, it's messy, it's slippery. And so you're exactly right. They're the, the things that are happening in our world 
and there's there's the spiritual connection of how is God involved in that or not involved in that, or exactly where is God in the midst of all that? I think we're seeing some of that slippage here, where Isaiah said, God says, yeah, you were sold, and your, your mother was put away for your transgressions, for your sins. It's like it played out. The way you were living played out. Um, but I didn't abandon you. There's more to it than you think. He set us in a corner. He set us in a corner. Mm -hmm. yeah. Time out. Time out. <laughs> exactly. And that, that goes with, you know, I read the Bible a couple of times straight through, but by myself. And so I don't see these nuances. Yeah. And so, especially with the Old Testament, I gave up on that because it's just really hard to, not, to see these without leadership and discussion and um, understanding. Yeah. There's a good plug for Bible study, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're absolutely right. The, the culture is so different back there. And the understanding of God and God's ways is so different, even from what it will be by the time you get to Jesus. That, but, but Jesus doesn't abandon all that. He just gives us a new lens to see it through and help us grapple with a mystery that's really too big for us. He spoke really communally. Yes. Yes, which I find very beautiful. Because we're such an individualistic society now. Can you speak up just oh, a little bit? That, yeah, I'm just going to say, you have good things to hear, and we can't hear oh, you there. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they spoke really communally as a community. Yes. Yeah, on, on their focus and their emotions and their feelings, um, whereas we've kind of lost some of that, you know, exactly. in, in our culture and era, being very individualistic. So I, I see you know, they're together in this, yes. in their feelings, right. which is really powerful. It is. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is think about, it was 48 years. How many people died in Babylon? Yeah. How many people waited wondering, has God totally forgotten us? It took that long. And finally, not all of them came home anyway. It was a minority that actually came home. But yeah, it's corporate. It's not individual survival or individual experience. God cares, but it's not the focus. We're in this together. We're in it together. Would you turn to chapter 51, please? There's another lovely little, just three-verse passage here. Listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord. A little parenthesis there. Isaiah is speaking to the whole community of Israel, uh, but Isaiah is also well aware that there are some within the community that do seek the Lord and there are some who do not. And that, that uh, split will show up all the more in the final chapters of Isaiah. But so here's a, maybe here's, if we're thinking about the, the servant, the suffering servant as being all of Israel, but then this faithful minority and then Christ and then etc. We're maybe looking at that faithful minority now. Those of you that have been hanging on and waiting and trusting but listen to me, you that pursue righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. If you stopped right there, what would you assume is the rock and the quarry? Israel. Israel? God? 
so much stuff in scripture about God being our rock and foundation. But then as you move on, you're right about Israel. As you move on to verse 2. So if you're going to look to the rock, what rock? The quarry. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. Abraham was but one when I called him and blessed him and made him many. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He'll comfort all her waste places and make her wilderness like Eden. Um, look back to the beginning of the story. Look back to the quarry from which Israel was dug. Back to Sarah and Abraham and God's promise to them and God's faithfulness to them. Remember the story. Remember a God who is faithful and has not given up on this project and will not. There's back to your foundation. Amazing stuff in, in Isaiah about forget the past. I'm doing a new thing. And by the way, don't forget the past. Yeah. Okay. And then verses 4 through 8 of that chapter go on just with lots of promises about deliverance and about um, God's salvation and deliverance being forever. I just want to note for you that beginning in 51 verse 9, there is a long section that has a refrain in it that I think maybe our hymn, Wake Awake for Night is Coming, that actually comes from the the passage about the the bridesmaids. But I think there are echoes here as well. Awake Jerusalem, arise. So look at verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Then moving into 11, the ransom to the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing. One of those that's been made into a song. Verse 17, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. It's the same verb, but a different form of that verb is wake, awake. 52, verse 1, awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Get dressed in your best clothes. God's coming. Um, and then verse 11, depart, depart, go out from there. It's the call to leave, leave Babylon. Um, not going to spend time in that section, but I just want you to see it, that there's this repeated refrain that comes through there, calling, grieving Zion to wake up. It's time now for the new thing to come. And the most famous passage within that comes in 52, verse 7. Recognize that one? How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of the messenger who announces peace. That one. It's the one that once I became a pastor, I knew that my feet were pretty. <clears throat> okay. Chapter 54. <laughs> That's right. Chapter 54. Um, our last of these images of grieving women. Would someone read for us, please? 54, 1 through 3. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, burst into song and shout, you who have not been in labor, for the children of a desolate woman will be more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the site of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations and will settle the desolate towns. Thank you. So now the image is of a barren woman. Uh, think about, you've been, you've been in enough Bible studies and in Old Testament passages especially, what, uh, what did it mean for a woman to be barren in that culture? You were cast you out. Nothing. Cast out, worth nothing, no value. Yeah. Um, 
whether we like that, uh, that that society was structured that way or not. That's the truth about how society was structured. And for a woman to experience barrenness was about the worst tragedy that they could, they could have. And then think of the stories down through the, the Old Testament. Abraham and Sarah, Rebecca and Isaac, Jacob and Rachel and Leah, barrenness in each of those generations with the key spouse um, until God intervenes. What's that trying to say? We're not going to pull this off ourselves. We're not going to accomplish this uh, salvation story that God's initiating by ourselves. Only the giver of life can intervene here. Anna, the mother of Samuel. And incidentally, here, if you, if you start looking at these women, you start seeing strong women in the scripture, um, not just grieving and not just suffering or whatever, or fulfilling their proper roles, but women who take real leadership in new situations, and often with that note of barrenness that then God responds to and gives the gift of life. Until you get to the New Testament, to Elizabeth and Mary. Um, a, barren, a lifelong barrenness there for Elizabeth till the end. And Mary, who wasn't barren, but wasn't planning to have kids yet. It's the whole issue of God intervening with the gift of miraculous new life, um, responding to that barrenness. By the way, before we leave, um, did you notice that there are more than two people in the picture? The baby. There's the shadow. The shadow. The baby, yeah. There's a little hand. And the head. And the head, yep. I don't know if this is somebody back here too or just a shadow, but yeah, there is, and I didn't see this until uh, Hallie had finally put it up here this morning, and she hadn't seen it either, and we stood and looked at it, and she said, there's a child in there. There is something new coming out of this barrenness and loss and grief, um, new gift of life. Even as, in, you know, if, if these women are going through, exile and tragedy, having a child at the time makes it all the more difficult. And I love the green because green is a, a, weird, is a death color. Green is, green is a death color of death the bodies that are yes. deceased. And so it's, to me, when I saw that green, it's like mm. they are on the edge of something very tragic in terms of impending disasters yeah. and death. Yeah, yeah almost corpse-like. Yeah. yeah. But then new life coming in the midst of that. Yeah. So here in 54, a barren one, sing, O barren one that you've never, you've never born. Burst aloud and shout those who have never been in labor, because you're going to have far more kids than that well-off married lady that you've known all along. Now, kids all over the place. And here's this, make the tent bigger, stretch out the tent, stretch out the ropes. We need to make more space for these kids. It, isn't that like the, the promise to Abraham that your children will be like the stars? You're going to yes. have so many children. Like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. Exactly. Um, as the verses that follow, you've got another one of those places where um, you can see God and Isaiah knowing Zion's grief and expressing it, and then God countering it at the same time, and it's a painful one. Uh, verse 6. The Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, like the wife of a man's youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandoned you. 
And we can have all kinds of theological struggles now, but at least God is naming their experience, right? But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing wrath for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Um, whatever you're going to do with that picture of God as someone who says, yeah, I did cast you off. The picture is, I know what you're feeling. I know where you are. I know what you're grieving. And my promise to you is forever. Again, I see a kid in the corner. I'll set the timer for 10 minutes. <laughs> and for God... 48 years was probably 10 minutes. <laughs> probably 10 minutes, yeah. I want to see Jesus, the correlation of Jesus on the cross in those verses. Forsaken. Yeah, forsaken. That is powerful. That didn't come through the tape. She sees Jesus on the cross in that forsakenness for that brief moment. And then the Redeemer that falls. Yep. Makes me always wonder where Jesus, when he spoke, which scriptures he was drawing from. I think he was pretty immersed in an awful lot of this stuff. Yeah. When we haven't spoken about our own experiences of grief and loss during these two years, um, they've been here in the room with us. I don't know that we need to name them, but I hope they're. I hope these passages are settling in on those experiences of grief. Let me have you here just w listen to one last passage then before we quit for today. This is chapter 54, verse 11. And by the way, once again, all of the yous in this section are feminine singular. So it's, it's being spoken to Zion, to Jerusalem. Mark, can you step closer here? Because they're getting a lot Getting noisy over there. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so verse 11. O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted. Isn't that a clear naming of where we are sometimes? I am about to set your stones in antimony, lay your foundations in sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of jewels, and all your walls of precious stones. So that image of all of the... All of the the most, um, the most expensive and gorgeous decoration you can imagine decorating your city. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great will be the shalom of your children. In righteousness you will be established, you'll be far from oppression, you shall not fear. And it goes on, but that, O oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, I am about to restore you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you know where we are. And thank you that your promise and your faithfulness are forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.